From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Francogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how to be a trusted messenger on climate change, who's steering the self-driving car craze, how FTSE is digging in its heels on ESG data, and why ocean is the new climate. It's a sea change this week on 350. It's May 5th, 2017, Cinco de Mayo. Hola, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm Joel McCower. Here with me is GreenBiz senior writer Lauren Hepler. Buenos dias. Hola, ¿qué tal, Joel? <laughs> oh, bien, gracias. Um, uh, how, let's, let's go back to our, our much more capable, we think, uh, native tongue. Um, <laughs> how was your week? It was good. You're just finishing... Uh, a year of school. Yes. How's that? In my parallel life as a graduate student at UC Berkeley, uh, it is almost summer. You can tell by the 80 degree weather in the Bay Area too. So yeah, just winding down. I think we were talking, it's timely that it's Cinco de Mayo. I'm going to be headed to Mexico for a few weeks this summer to uh, brush up on my Spanish so I don't butcher it on future editions of the podcast. <laughs> like I just did. Uh, so <laughs> any reflections on, I um, mean, you went back to school and it's been a, a number of years. How was it? Uh, no, it's interesting. I, I think it's easy sometimes to sort of feel like you're getting down into the weeds on things like renewable energy, and I write a lot about transportation and mobility. But in my work at school, I'm covering sort of cities and development more broadly. And it's really interesting to see how often these things are starting to come up at like city council meetings and local government to sort of put things in perspective, I guess. But what about you? Has it been busy times lately? Well, yeah, last week, as I said, was lots and lots of events this week. is a lot more chill, but I'm getting ready to head to three consecutive weekly meetings of the Green Biz Executive Networks. This is our membership group of sustainability execs from big companies that we bring together in small groups. And we'll be meeting in Washington, D.C. at the headquarters of National Geographic, which is partly owned by uh, 21st Century Fox which is our member. And the following week, we'll be up in Princeton, New Jersey at the brand spanking new headquarters building of NRG Energy. And uh, week three, just I guess before Memorial Day, we'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte at the headquarters of Ingersoll Rand, where we're going to go to, among other things, a NASCAR race, uh, something we did a few years ago when we also met uh, down there. Um, and it's kind of an interesting experience uh, for those of us who grew up in uh, non-red uh, states. And so that's uh, what's, what's happening this this month. Good stuff. And obviously, we're also in the home stretch before Verge Hawaii taking place June 20th through 22nd in Honolulu. Just a quick reminder, you can always get information about our events by going going to greenbiz.com slash events. Yeah, thanks for, for reminding it. We're always working on our next three conferences, in this case, Verge Hawaii, then Verge 17 in Santa Clara in September, and then GreenBiz 18 next February in Phoenix. So it's become so much of the background of what we do every day at GreenBiz that I sort of forget about that's what's going on. But yeah, Hawaii is looking really interesting. We're going to have some, some great speakers there. And we just announced this week the uh, 15 finalist companies for the that will participate in the Accelerate program that we have on stage at, at all of our Verge and uh, Verge events. And so check that out. We'll link to that on the uh, the page for this week's episode. Meanwhile, let's get on the week in review. Well, 
What was interesting this week is I'm not sure if it's the time, the political environment, or just the random convergence of of stories that came in, but we had a lot of big picture stories, why long-term investors are killing fossil fuels by my co-author Patrick Doherty, uh, how U.S. business schools are failing on climate change, why more big investors are taking action on climate risks, uh, are we experiencing a groundhog day of ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance information by investors? A, a lot of big issues. One of them was about the ocean. That's right. We had an intriguing title on this piece by Alan Atkinson, who's the president and CEO of Atkinson Group. It was called, Why Ocean is the New Climate and What It Means for Business. Yeah, if you look at uh, you know a topic that hasn't really been looked at all that much, it's not something we talk about. We talk about things we take for granted. There's a lot going on literally under the surface with oceans around uh, plastics, around coral reefs, around acidification, uh, oxygen levels that are really troubling. And when you look at it through the lens of business, what we've talked about is the blue economy. In fact, that was the topic of one of the trends we mentioned in our 2016 State of Green Business Report, the one we did a year ago, um, this has some significant business and economic implications. Definitely. And there's just like sort of a, a vast range of issues in play here. I think that's the one thing that can sort of be overwhelming at times. You think about acidification and sort of overfishing. There's a, a lot going on in our oceans since obviously they take up such a large proportion of Earth. But I think the, the point of Alan's piece was sort of looking at how we've evolved from Greenpeace's calls four decades ago or so to sort of save the whales and how we've really evolved when it comes to even the UN now as part of their global goals is looking at saving the oceans. They're even holding an ocean conference this June. So just seeing sort of how there are opportunities for businesses to sort of play into these broader efforts to, to make a dent in some of these big picture challenges. And fortunately, we're starting to get some of the tools companies will need to do that. So, for example, Alan writes about the principles for a sustainable blue economy uh, that uh, WWF promulgated and also uh, links to a draft of another WWF project, the Guidance for Investors and Policymakers. It's a roadmap for the development of a sustainable blue economy protocol, sort of getting into, well, how do we think about this? What are the, the, the principles? Um, and, and is the, the protocol talks about it being voluntary, non-prescriptive, science-based, people-centered, conservation-minded? And, and what does that look like when it comes to the many sectors that beyond fishing, including fishing, but beyond that, uh, that rely on the ocean. So this will be a growing topic. I really recommend that you read Alan's piece. But let's move from sea to land and uh, let's talk about the world of transportation. That's your beat, Lauren. You had a really interesting piece this week on who's driving the uh, autonomous vehicle craze. Yeah, so it seemed like a good time to do a check-in. We've covered, obviously, the evolution of electric vehicles and what several years ago seemed like a very long-term idea about self-driving or autonomous vehicles. But there's been sort of a real flurry of activity. Researchers at Stanford peg it to about the, the last eight years or so that we've really seen sort of a crush of competition emerge in this space where you've got big automakers 
makers like GM making huge nine-figure investments in self-driving car companies. GM paid $600 million to acquire a tech startup called Cruise Automation, for example. But I was really interested in looking at self-driving cars beyond the big automakers. So the sort of ripped from the headlines part of this is an interesting lawsuit going on between Google's self-driving car company, Waymo, who is accusing Uber of acquiring a company that had stolen information. So you're kind of getting into these like IP wars now in self-driving cars, which will definitely be interesting. Beyond that, there's other big players to watch like Samsung and Baidu testing these technologies in South Korea and China, but also some smaller players that I think will be really interesting to see evolve. One of them that I really fascinated with is Proterra, which is not making self-driving cars. They're making buses that, first of all, are electric and uh, already and soon will be uh, autonomous self-driving. That's just a really interesting company. And one of the things that uh, you know makes me wish that I had invested in Proterra way back when is that as more and more cities, let's just start in the U.S., are looking at how do you create electric bus fleets to address their low-carbon ambitions or commitments. Uh, They also, most of them, have buy U.S. mandates. So they have to buy or at least give priority to American-made vehicles. And and Proterra is the only, I believe, the only U.S. maker of electric and and now soon-to-be self-driving buses. So they've really got the inside track. And uh, from what I've been hearing about Proterra, they are really going gangbusters. I think we're going to be potentially watching that kind of hockey stick growth that we like to see with Ubers and, and Apples and so many other companies that you name. Yeah, I agree, Joel. I think that's definitely one space to watch Proterra sort of being an example of how you automate and electrify heavy duty vehicles. So that's something that I know a lot of folks in the world of corporate fleets who deal with different sorts of trucks, vans, delivery vehicles uh, are definitely watching closely. And that's another thing that, again, some of the researchers from Stanford University and elsewhere point out as we see sort of competition and R&D improvements on the consumer side with self-driving cars, Definitely look for some of that momentum to transfer into remote control delivery vehicles, flying vehicles, and good old-fashioned semi-trucks. It's a really uh, exciting world out there on on vehicles, and boy, talk about a moving target. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to say that. But uh, let's move from from that to the world of climate, back to climate change. Uh, We ran a piece that I just loved uh, from an old friend of ours, David Wigder, looking at how to be a trusted messenger and some of the key ways to talk about this stuff in a way that will engage Americans, whether they're deniers or on the fence or wherever. And I called up David recently and uh, to talk about this, here's that conversation. Hey, David, it's been a while. Joel, it's been a, it's been a long time. How are you doing? <laughs> doing great, thanks. So I, I loved your piece and I thought maybe you could, you're a communications pro you've been in, in marketing and communications and strategy around that for, well, as long as I've known you, a long, long time. Tell us what's wrong with climate communications to begin with. Well, I think first, let's just set the, the table. So we all know that we, we that individually we operate in these echo chambers, right? I think that's a really important place to start because, you know, it's not just the news that we read, but the media we consume and by the extension, the messages that we receive. And um, advertisers do this, right, because they're looking for specific people, for the, uh, who are receptive to their message. And that means they're looking for people who look like their customers. And arguably, it's it's not much different in um, climate communications where um, we have different groups and 
were focused on the, and largely they're looking on the converted people who have already bought the message and that they um, are trying to, you know, for example, organizations like 350.org is a great organization doing some incredible work. They're focused on political mobilization, not attitude change per se. Um, they're trying to pressure, uh, motivate their base to apply pressure um, in the political sphere. And it's not a bad thing and it generates positive change, but it doesn't necessarily bring others along or change attitudes more broadly across the country because they're speaking to the, the crowded. So the echo chamber is a really big part of um, the challenge today. One of the rubs on climate communications is that it's also abstract. But you point out that this is really happening now, and you cite, uh, you know, eight or ten bullets in the piece about, you know, from Florida to Minnesota to Maine, Alaska, Carolinas, and Montana, some of the ways that everyday Americans, in this case, are already experiencing climate change. And that, I think you say, is an opportunity. It is an opportunity. When you think about climate change communications today, we tend to talk about it in terms of uh, global terms, not not human ones. So when you think about what's reported into the press, people focus on two degrees as the threshold by which we can't cross. But what does two degree change in, in global temperature really mean to the average person? You know, it doesn't affect what we wear, what activities we do. So how does it provide us context with how significant such a change is on a global scale? Well, it really doesn't. And, and if that's the case, how do we expect people to understand the urgency to take action? And, and, and people really can't. So by focusing in on specific things in local communities, uh, we have an opportunity to, to really uh, engage people. One, because uh, it's it, they personally feel the harm or the inconvenience of the impact from climate change. And that's, that makes a big difference in terms of how people relate to that change. And, and it's also not just the message and the local versus the global, but it's also the messenger. Who, who are the trusted messengers? The trusted messengers are hard to find these days. Arguably, you, again, you have organizations that are putting out messages that appeal to their base, but doesn't necessarily cross a political divide. What we need are trusted messengers within specific communities. So, for example, Yale study points out that physicians are trusted messengers, regardless of your current beliefs in, in climate change. This is really important because it enables people to, in, uh, to turn to somebody who um, they believe is apolitical and be able to process that message. I think Arguably, other people that are, are influential influencers or trusted messengers are people who have been personally affected by climate change, particularly around their livelihood. So that could be commercial fishermen in North Carolina, or it could be local guides in Montana. And each one of those people are credible because they're experiencing day to day and it's impacting their way of life and, and the food and, and the, the income that they, 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 they generate. So you're saying, in effect, in this piece and what you just told me is that this is not or should not be about the planet or the species or the polar ice caps. This really needs to be about everyday people's experiences with a change in climate. And uh, if they can get their arms and brains wrapped around that, that Maybe, just maybe they can start to think at a more global level. Yeah, I think I think we need, need to start we need to start locally. I think it has to be personal. 
and people have to feel that effect and then be able to act upon that. I think one of the things that we, we tend to default to is focus on weather events. And I think the challenge with weather events is that while they're significant, we all have context for those. So because there's a more intense storm this year versus last, last we, we, we still see that as within the realm of being normal. So that's not going to necessarily change people's behaviors or motivate them to act because, again, it's, 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 it's part of their normal context. What we're looking for are personal uh, impact that causes harm or inconvenience that's almost unexpected. You have a, a reference for that, that the fish, the trout, should be in the local river and you should be able to go fish for them. But then suddenly the trout aren't there anymore. In fact, they're a, a thousand feet higher in elevation because they're, they're seeking colder waters. Um, or the commercial fishermen off of the Carolinas have to uh, steam hundreds of miles north to chase the, pool, the uh, schools of fish because they are also seeking colder waters. And when that change happens, it's abrupt and it's unexpected. And it's not only, it's a combination of the personal harm with the abrupt change, which is going to capture people's attention and motivate them to act. Well, David, this is a really interesting topic, and I'd love to hear more from you on this in the coming weeks and months. Uh, this, is, this is a critical part of, of changing the conversation, or maybe it's even starting a conversation on climate change. So um, thanks for this. And uh, like I said, I hope there's more to come. David Wigder, Head of Insights, Performance, and Data Strategy at Flipboard. Thanks, David. Thanks, Joel. One thing we wanted to do this week was a quick check-in on the world of ESG investing. To do that is our editorial director, Heather Clancy. When we look at who is driving the shift to integrate environmental and sustainability factors into investment decisions... The attention is often focused on large money managers or pension funds, such as CalPERS or BlackRock. But an overlooked and perhaps equally as important participant driving this change are the index providers like uh, FTSE Russell, which is owned by the London Stock Exchange Group. Our reporter Keith Larson talked with the person who leads FTSE Russell's ESG investment business in the Americas, Tony Campos. They discussed how integrating ESG factors into investment decisions has gone from niche to mainstream, and what's going on. What he's hearing from investors and companies about the demand for ESG information during the Trump administration. First of all, Keith, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Heather. Excited to have you uh, focusing on many of these investment issues. It's great. Um, so actually, for a neophyte like me, could you give me a little bit, like, let's just start out by talking about how an index fund works, like what's its purpose in life? An index fund is just a fund that tracks um, an index. And uh, in this case, we're, we're focusing more on just uh, index providers, which is just a measure of, of stocks or, or bonds. And it's just an aggregate of uh, different sector bonds like the S&P 500, which companies can then, or which different investors can compare against as a benchmark to say, oh, you know, we're doing better than, than this index or um, we're doing worse than this index. Yeah. So this FTSE Russell index, um, it's a pretty well widely used one, I believe. I, I mean, I knew how to pronounce it, so therefore it must be. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's pretty interesting. Like the story in FTSE Russell itself as a, it's one of the largest index providers in the world. There's, I think it's, it's close to $10 trillion 
of, of assets, wow. which is huge. And, and, and U.S. investors are more likely familiar with the Russell side, including the Russell um, 2000 small cap. So the, the, for U.S. investors, you may be more familiar um, with the Russell side. Now, you actually um, discovered that um, during the interview that the FTSE uh, group has focused on what I think you described as morally driven investments um, for like about 15 years. Um, and that this change is that there's a change occurring. So I'm wondering if you could t discuss its initial focus and how it shifted. What's driving that shift? So FTSE started this index called the FTSE for Good Index back in 2001. So uh, back then, uh, what Campus was saying was that it was it was a completely different landscape. Like in the media, um, they were kind of even made fun of, and in with with different companies, it, it wasn't. It was it was like, oh, this is nice, but this is just a passing fad. And most of the focus was on morally driven investment decisions, such as um, you know maybe divesting from looking at tobacco or fossil fuels or something like that. Now, I mean, this is kind of a terrible cliche, but it's become main, gone from niche to mainstream, and has become a a real. Uh, I mean, all, all company, you know, most companies and asset owners are, are looking at this information now. And what sort of information is it that, that they're really looking at? I mean, it's like there's specific metrics that are part of this? Yeah, they have this huge rating system um, that's really intricate. And I, I think there's, I mean, they look at over 3,000 securities and there's over 300 individual indicator assessments. And it, it's really it's kind of interesting, this evolution of, of how we, we quantify this information and look at these things, just looking at really specific things about how they're reporting and, and kind of disclosure. And uh, I thought it was interesting, too, the relationship that FTSE Russell has with, with the companies to go back to the companies and say, hey, well, these are some things you can improve. I get their side of the story, too, to, to kind of work together on these things. So they are they like going to drop people if they're not doing these things or what, what you mean like is there a chance that you might be dropped out of the index if you're not complying or doing the sorts of things that they want? Yeah, I believe I believe there is. I mean, um, so the minimum score is that each each company has to have a rating of three point one out of five on their on their rating system. And so if I guess if they fall below that, they they wouldn't meet it. But they they try to work with companies to to make sure that they they meet the ratings. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, the companies and their benchmarks include Microsoft, Apple, AT&T, and also Wells Fargo's. So was the, the shift driven internally or was there some outside pressure? And why is this important? Are others are other indexes doing the same? Yeah, I think there, there's multiple drivers to this, um, what Campos was talking to me, beyond just, just this general shift to ESG investment. Uh, one of the biggest shifts... Which, which is really interesting. Uh, I love when like these broader finance shifts are happening along with, with ESG uh, shifts as well, is this move from active investing to passive investing, meaning that investors are no longer going to hedge funds and are instead going to index funds and uh, where, where they can just put their money in and it just mirrors the image of, say, the S&P 500, and so that's that's one of the big drivers of, of this uh, of this change. So just one more question for you, Keith, before we wrap up. Um, you know, why is this really important during the Trump administration? Well, I think it's important during the Trump administration because what Campos was saying and what I've heard just from talking with with other different investment groups and in this realm is that hey, this really isn't 
the Trump administration really isn't affecting ESG investing, and it really isn't affecting sustainability investing. Um, and these are these are kind of global. We're looking at it from a global perspective. And I mean, the the underlying economics of of uh, these investments aren't changing, which which in itself I think is significant. And and it's just kind of a a call to all all of us in the corporate sustainability field and all of us who are interested in this, like. And especially in the investment side, saying, hey, you know, let's get past the noise. Let's, let's actually look at the investment value of uh, the value of these investments um, rather than than this noise from the from politics. Yeah. So hold firm. Hold firm. Right. Right. Well, so thank you so much for uh, checking in with us today. I look forward to hearing more about this and some of the other things I know you're exploring. Take care, Keith. Well, thanks for having me, Heather. So continuing in the investing theme, Lauren, you ran a piece recently that looked at the emerging field of aggregated renewable energy deals. Basically, this is a new business models which allow a lot of different kinds of parties, companies, universities, other energy users, institutions, government agencies to jointly finance a solar farm or a wind farm or some other type of renewable energy project. Why is this uh, a new thing? Why is it important? Yeah, that's right. So it's potentially big news because this type of aggregated deal could potentially expand the field of corporate renewables in particular beyond the big names you hear about. Like you think of the big example a couple years ago of Apple investing upwards of $800 million in a big solar farm in California. So obviously, that's a deal that only a company with pockets of a certain depth can pull off, shall we say. So the idea here with aggregated renewables is to have multiple companies sort of buying a slice of uh, a new energy development. Obviously, that can get complicated when you're making sure that everybody has the same goals about where and how these deals are financed. But it's something that we've seen so far in Boston. MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, was one party there. Also in Europe, there's an example of Google and Philips coming together with a couple of other players. But there are reports of other deals of this sort in the works, according to Ian Kelly, who is with the Rocky Mountain Institute Business Renewables Center. And here's what he had to say about what aggregated renewables are and why they matter. For several years now, there's been a lot of interest in how can we sort of make this type of transaction more available to companies beyond the really big ones that need to sign the whole, you know, a contract for the whole winter solar farm. Uh, and aggregation is seen as one of the, the primary ways that people have come up with to make that possible. So essentially aggregating a number of buyers, people often say smaller buyers, they're not necessarily small organizations, but buyers that have smaller needs for that particular transaction. So aggregating together these smaller buyers so that you have say two, three, four, maybe more, who are all contracting for the output of, of one of these larger wind or solar plants. So we're, we're starting to see activity of, uh, you know, in this aggregation space, which is really exciting um, because, again, we, we see it as a key to um, allowing more companies to participate in renewables this way. I think what we're also seeing, though, is for-profit companies some of whom have done these deals themselves previously, but wanting to wanting to help support an expansion of the market. So Google, of course, has done these deals for years, has done many of these deals. I think it's very well known. I think you see leadership from companies like that saying, essentially, 
we know how to do this, but we'd like to sort of join with others and try to bring them along in some respects. And so support more corporate renewables procurement through our own participation in an aggregated group. So this makes sense in that this is a great way to lower the cost, financial barrier to entry for corporate investments in clean energy. But talk a little bit more about the mechanics of these. How do these deals actually work? It's a good question, since buying renewable energy can already be pretty complicated. You've only seen a few companies, again, Apple being a good example, that have gone through the process of getting certified by FERC, the federal energy regulator, to directly buy and sell renewable energy. So you've got most companies that are dealing in this realm of virtual power purchase agreements, which is basically uh, renewable energy deals that I've had them describe to me as sort of electron accounting, where people are buying, selling, trading renewables uh, at a distance remotely. It doesn't really matter geographically where you are. But so with aggregated deals, the trick is figuring out whether everybody sort of buys an equal slice of the pie. Everybody just has their own power purchase agreement with the renewable energy developer, or there is the potential to do something that's called an anchor tenant model, where you would have one company sort of buy the bulk and then sell off some smaller slices. That hasn't tended to be the case so far, but that's certainly something that could happen down the road. That's also something that I asked Ian Kelly of the Rocky Mountain Institute, and here's what he had to say about potential barriers and ways to overcome them with aggregated renewables. Fundamentally, you have to be comfortable with this type of deal itself. And typically, if you're a company that's not in the electricity space or the energy space as part of your core business, this can be a little bit of a uh, a learning experience, and it is it is complex. Now, it's not so complex that companies can't do it. Obviously, companies are doing it, but it takes a little bit of uh, of time to get up to speed. And then, as far as aggregation, you have this kind of added layer of how will we work together as a group of buyers? Um, so, how do we want to structure ourselves? Is, are we sort of a loose consortium, and we're each going to sign separate contracts? with the developer of that wind or solar farm, or are we going to do something different? It's certainly possible that you could have companies that were able to agree on basically most of the terms, if not all of the terms in a, in a single PPA and, and just sign essentially that same deal. It'd still be separate contracts, but sign you know the same bargain. You could also theoretically have uh, kind of an anchor tenant model. So you could have one company that is going to sign the PPA, but then either the other companies just sort of agree to whatever that the the whatever that contract looks like and sign the same contract, or sort of sign with with the first company as a middleman. Essentially, we haven't seen that much because, of course, that first company that that middleman needs to be comfortable with the credit rating of the different companies that would be buying from it, essentially, and that type of thing. It's kind of putting its own balance sheet up for the other companies to use. So uh, we've seen some talk about possibly structuring deals that way. I don't think we've seen anything like that yet. This is a really interesting topic. We're going to be hosting at Verge in September in Santa Clara, the meeting for the uh, Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, which is an organization that was formed by BSR, uh, the Business Renewable Center at Rocky Mountain Institute, WWF, WRI, and some others to help companies and to help grow the corporate demand for renewable power and help utilities and others meet it. So I look forward to hearing more, but where do you see this going now? Uh, What are some of the trends we should be watching? 
There are a couple of trends that are pretty fascinating here. One of them is a much broader shift in the market for corporate clean energy, um, whereas Ian Kelly said upwards of 98% of all renewable energy transactions involving corporate buyers used to be wind projects as recently as like 2014. With the declining cost of solar, he's seeing something more like an 80-20 split now between wind and solar. Um, It's unclear whether aggregation would have a more dramatic effect on those proportions, but I think the types of projects that businesses are investing in is definitely interesting to watch. Another thing is finding a sweet spot in terms of project size. So uh, a lot of the deals to date involving corporations have been folks trying to power their electricity-hungry data centers and those type of things. Um, So so far, for aggregation deals, they've tended to see companies with a minimum of 10 megawatts of of electricity need to sort of justify the cost. But I think that's a variable that, that could shift. And then finally, like I said, it's just sort of seeing how the softer sort of political or financial elements of all of this could work out. Because when you get into multiple companies signing deals with each other, eventually they're putting their own balance sheets out there, their own credit ratings, sort of in the hands of of their partners. So like any joint venture, there's sort of some added sensitivity that makes these deals definitely interesting to watch. This is, like I said, just a growing field. And and this is, I think, my second hockey stick reference of this show. But uh, this will be growing uh, like gangbusters, as we're seeing already. Just in the past six to 12 months, corporate renewable energy procurement takeoff. I think in some ways we ain't seen nothing yet. Thanks, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organizations, the stories, and the events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to this week's podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.